For the next little while today, I want to speak to you about heaven in a message entitled, Heaven is for Real. Heaven is for Real. Let me read you the text, beginning in verse number 9 of chapter 7. The Bible says, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people of all tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. They cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sits upon the throne, and to the Lamb. And the angel stood round about the throne and about the elders, and the four beasts fell down before the throne on their faces, and they worshipped God, saying, Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. One of the elders answered, saying to me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And where do they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He that sits on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them unto living fountains of water, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And May God add His blessings today. As we look at, heaven is for real. Most of us will remember just a few years ago, there was a book written by that title. There was also a movie that came out shortly thereafter by that title, Heaven is for Real. It is a story of a small town father who has to somehow find the courage and the intestinal fortitude to share with the world his son Colton's experience in what he would call a life-after-death, life-changing experience. Young Colton was four years old when he was rushed into the emergency room with a ruptured appendix. And during this procedure, Colton, who did survive the procedure, later would say that he believed that he died and that he went to heaven, and now he tells his mother and father some of the astounding experiences that he had While he was in heaven, he said, for example, that he met people whom he knew that he never had met before and did not know that he knew them. He said that he had met his great grandfather, again, a man whom he had never met before. He said to have met a sister that was his who died in a miscarriage that Colton had no idea that that had ever taken place in the life of his family. This little boy said that he could see. Um, the surgeons operating on him in the operating room, that he could see his mother in the waiting room, and she was inviting other people to pray for him while he's going through this procedure, and that he could see his father in yet another room shouting at God and angry with God and begging God to not let him die. Well, I read the book. I saw the movie, as probably most of you in here, or many of you did, And I'm always skeptical about uh, human experiences um, because I know human experiences can change. And by the way, on that, let me say we never judge the Word of God by a human experience, but we always judge those experiences by what the Bible has to say. The Bible is always our guide. 
But whatever we think about Colton's story, whatever we think about the experience that he discusses, I'm here to tell you today that heaven is for real, not because of Colton's experience, but because the Bible says that heaven is real. It is a real place. It is a real place filled with real people. And one of these days, if you know the Lord, it will be your and my eternal home. Heaven is not mythology. Heaven is theology. It is not just simply a state of mind, nirvana, but heaven, heaven is a state of being. It has a literal location. It is not a process. It is an address. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will receive you to myself that where I am there, you may be also. So today, heaven is real. Now the Bible doesn't tell us about its geographical location. We don't know for sure uh, the location other than the scripture refers to it as being up or being ab above us or beyond us. Because the Bible says that Jesus was, was um, um, translated or transferred back into heaven in his post-resurrection experience. The Apostle Paul said, I knew a man who died or, or a man who experienced the third heaven, he said. Listen to what Psalms 14 says. The Lord looks down on the children of men to see if there are any who understand and seek after God. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. So we know that heaven is somewhere beyond us. And we know that it is a real place in which the scripture discusses. In fact, the book of Revelation tells us more about heaven than any other book in the Bible. It has been a little over three years ago now since my father passed away. And when my father was sick, the, the final day of his life, myself and my siblings, we all kind of came around his, his bedside, and we all sang, and we prayed, and we laughed, and cried, and did all the things that you do when you're ready to say goodbye to somebody. And I took the Bible, and I opened up to Revelation chapter 21, and I read for my father in the last hours of his life, John's description from heaven. And in Revelation 21, John says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. He said, I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be their God. And God shall wipe away all the tears from their eyes, and there will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, nor any more pain, for all former things have been, have been passed away. That is a beautiful, beautiful description of heaven. He goes into much greater detail than what I would give you this morning. He describes the streets of gold, and he describes the gates of pearl and the walls of Jasper. He describes a beautiful crystal river th flowing through the, through the center of heaven and the tree of life that is there for the healing of the nations. So that is a beautiful picture of heaven. But also here in chapter 7, we have just a, just a thumbnail sketch. John takes about eight or nine verses, and he tells us a little bit about the future home of every person who knows the Lord. Now it ought to be an exciting time when we think about that we have a home much better than the one we have here when death comes our way. 
The Bible says that eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. So I want us to look today at the reality of heaven, discover who's there, how to get there, and what is the ultimate purpose. So first of all, if you take notes, I want you to jot down that heaven is filled with real people. It's not make-believe. It is not fairy tale. It is, as I said, it is not mythological in nature, but it is as real, even more real than where you and I are today. You will notice in verse number nine, John says, after this I beheld, or after this I looked. What is he referring to? Well, when he says that, he is referring to the events that have just unfolded in chapter six. Always keep in mind now, Chapter number seven occurs during the midst of the great tribulation period. This is after the rapture of the church. Those of us who know the Lord will be raptured uh, back to heaven. We will be there with the Lord Jesus. And then hell on earth will be unleashed uh, here for a seven-year period of tribulation. So as John introduces the subject in verse 9 of what heaven is going to be like, he said, after all of these things that have occurred in chapter 6, he says, I looked, and then he begins to give us this description of what he saw. But all the way back in chapter 6, the Bible talks about a seven-sealed scroll that was being unrolled. And if you could kind of imagine in your mind a, a scroll rolled up like a rolling pin with a wax seal on it, and the first seal would be broken and a portion of that document be revealed. And the scripture back in chapter 6 says that the events on, on earth that took place when that first seal was broken was a rider on a white horse that made its, his entrance on the earth. It was a picture of conquest. And then another seal broken and more of the scroll revealed. And he says it was the, um, the red horse or great war throughout, throughout the earth. And then another seal broken. And that was the black horse or um, uh, a famine uh, that was unleashed on this planet. And then the fourth seal, of course, was the pale horse or death. And then as the fifth seal is cracked open and a little more of that scroll is revealed, John says, I see the souls of those who were martyred during the great tribulation period. So the scene that John discusses for us in chapter 7, verse 9, is primarily the scene of individuals who were martyred for their faith during that seven-year tribulation period. But it is also, an, an application, it is also inclusive of every single person who knows the Lord. So if you will go to chapter 7, verse 9, and look at how it unfolds there, you'll see what I mean. He says, there was a great multitude which no man could number of all nations, kindreds, people, and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. Now prior to this, after all of those seals or six of those seals had been opened, John says that God chooses 12,000 people from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, giving us 144,000. And those people are protected by God. And during this seven-year tribulation period, they'll have the responsibility of sharing God's truth with the world. So as John says, after all of these events took place, I looked. And as I looked, I beheld, and I saw an incredible worship service. 
He says that heaven was literally filled with people. And these were people that he describes as from every nation, every tongue, every language, every people group, every kindred, every person from every part and every walk of the life in the world. It is an incredible, incredible picture. A vast multitude standing before the throne of God. Now, we don't know how many people there are there. It just says that it's an innumerable number, a vast company, a great multitude. And there are people that represent every part of the world that are there before the throne of God. We just think about that this morning, by the way. And they're worshiping God. Do you know when you and I get to heaven, there will be people there from America, there will be people there from Africa, from Asia, from Europe, from every place in the world. Not everyone in heaven will look like we look. There'll be people there as diverse and as varied as the human family is itself. And the scripture pictures them as dressed in white robes, a sign of purity, holding palm branches uh, in their hand, which is a sign of victory. And the subject matter on all of their lips is gratitude. You can read that in the text. Gratitude, they were singing or saying Thanks be to God for the salvation that he has made available through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That'll be, will be part of that vast multitude in heaven because it's a real place. It's filled with real people. And when you and I uh, die, we will become part of that vast multitude there before the throne of God. Now I think a lot about what a multitude of people worshiping God from every walk of life must look like. I've been blessed to be able to travel to many different countries in the world and share the gospel. Some very small remote villages like uh, Cambodia and Vietnam and, and be part of a worship service there where it's just a few people in a floating village, a little bamboo hut that's floating on the water. I've preached in Moscow, Russia, in larger, what we would call Greek Orthodox church, very liturgical, very rote in their worship styles. Uh, I have preached in places like uh, Brazil, just uh, different places around the world. And everybody or every culture seems to have their own worship style. And usually our worship styles are kind of birthed out of the culture in which we grew up. Years ago, in fact, it was back in 1996, I had an opportunity to go uh, to a Billy Graham crusade. It was my one and only time of ever listening to Billy Graham preach in person. And it's when he was in Charlotte, North Carolina. And when Dr. Graham was there, you know, I always go back, even to this day, and I, I, when I find them on television or uh, on YouTube or something, and I pull up some of those great crusades that he had preached over the years where he spoke to thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of people. And it's just phenomenal how God used him to draw people to the cross. But on that night that we went to the uh, Billy Graham crusade in Charlotte, it just happened to be youth night. And on that night... The music, the song set that he had his, his folk to do were, were geared specifically for young people. 
Because he knew that that culture for those young people would be different than someone perhaps my age. And he would use that as a tool to draw them in so he could then share the life-changing message of the gospel. So it is true. He had such wisdom in knowing how to do that. He could have been just stuck and said, we're only going to do one kind of music, one kind of song, and that's going to be it. But he knew that he had to appeal to the emotions to get people to come in. And he was using this for young people in a wonderful, wonderful way. Because he knew, listen... Our culture, our worship oftentimes comes out of our culture. For example, if a person in Africa is worshiping, many times they will do that with, with uh, tribal type drums and it's just part of who they are and it's part of their culture. If it's a person perhaps that is more uh, Latino type individual uh, that becomes a Christian, for them it's more geared toward you know, maybe the bongos and a guitar. For us maybe it historically has been more the piano uh, for us. Uh, or if you were to go to the Appalachian Mountains of West Virginia, maybe it's more with the banjo and the fiddle. And we like, we like that kind of stuff here too, don't we? My point is there are really no right and wrong ways to worship. As long as worship exalts God and is done decently and in order and respectful and draws others to the cross. So when John sees this picture, he says, there's everybody that you could imagine. They all look different. They're, they talk different, every language, every culture. And they're all worshiping God, dressed in these white robes. Here's the picture. That heaven is filled with people. Heaven is filled with people. Listen, sometimes I think about that and I think, man, this, this world's in such bad shape. Uh, there's a lot more lost than saved. And that may be the case, but I want you to know that heaven's not going to be empty when we get there. Because of what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary, people from every walk in life are going to be there. So my question to you today, are you going to be there? Are you ready to meet the Lord? Could you lay your head on your pillow tonight and say, if I were to die, I know with assurance that I'll wake up with God in glory. If not, I want you to know that before this sermon is over today. But heaven is filled with people. The second thing I want you to know is that heaven is free of real problems. Look in verse number 13. As all of this worship is going on, one of the elders answered me saying, what are these that are arrayed in the white robes and where do they came? And I said, sir, you know. And he said, these are they that came out of the great tribulation. And they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I mentioned to you that in the context, these are tribulation saints that have been martyred. If you'll back up in your Bible to one chapter, to chapter 6, and if you will look with me in verse number 9, you will see this. Chapter 6, verse 9. Remember I told you there was a document opened that had a series of seals. Verse number 9 says, He opened the fifth seal. I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. So John sees those who were killed and persecuted during this great tribulation period. Their souls are reserved under the altar of God. And John makes mention of that. Now go back to chapter 7. So he asks, who are these? He says, these are the ones, in verse 14, who came out of the great tribulation. So this is specifically the tribulation saints. But having said that, 
all of us who will go to heaven when we die, all of us have come out of an experience that we would say is a tribulation experience. The road from here to heaven is paved with heartache, trouble, sorrows, disappointments, sickness, pain, misunderstanding, ill feelings, unforgiveness, you name it. As part of the human condition, all of us experience it. When David wrote Psalm 23, he came to the close of that psalm, and he ends it this way. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. He says, surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. And he said, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Meaning wherever we go and whatever we do, there are two constant companions that walk with us, and that's the goodness of God and the mercy of God. You'll never go anywhere without God's goodness and God's mercy surrounding you. But it is also true that in every life, difficulty will come. Every family has it, every person has it, and none of us will get off of this planet without trouble. But when we get to heaven, listen, heaven is going to be free from the problems that we've had down here. Do you know everybody in heaven will have their own story? I said in the first service this morning, I've had, I have had, listen, if I die today, I, I can honestly say I have had a wonderful life. I don't want to die today. Listen, if I die today, I'm going to be as surprised as you are, okay? I don't want to die today, but if I were to die today, I have no complaints. I've had a wonderful life. I've had a wonderful childhood. I've been blessed. I've had a wonderful ministry. I have a wonderful wife. We have some good kids. And every part of my life, I look back and I say, Lord, I don't know why you've blessed me the way you've blessed me, but I sure do thank you for it. And I've had a wonderful, wonderful, blessed life. Not a perfect life, and I'm not certainly a far cry from a perfect person, and I've got a long way to go. I'm just saying, when we get to heaven, we'll all have stories. And some cannot say, like I would say, that life has just been kind of easy for me because not everybody has experienced that. There'll be some in heaven that will be there through a hard time of persecution like these tribulation saints. There'll be people in heaven who will be there that were abandoned when they were younger. There'll be people who are in heaven that have been abused when they were children. There'll be people in heaven who have gone through terrible times of divorce while they were here on the earth. There'll be people in heaven who've had to say goodbye to loved ones and to their spouse or maybe to a child who's passed off the scene before them. My point is that everybody who is in heaven will have kind of their own story, have how they too have come out of their great tribulation, how they came out of problems and God brought them to, to heaven where it is filled with real people. And where it is free of real problems because all of the problems that you and I have down here, listen, when we get to heaven, all of those, thank God, those will be behind us. Amen? And we won't have to worry about some of the racket and the struggles and the things that we worry about here. Perhaps you heard the story of the little girl. She and her dad were walking down the road one night and she looks up into the heavens at this black satin backdrop with these stars shining on it. And she said, oh, Dad, if, if this bottom side of heaven is this pretty, can you imagine what the top side of heaven must be like? It's going to be a wonderful experience. It is filled with people, and it is free of problems. One unknown writer says this about heaven. He said, if I sold my house and my car and had a big garage sale and gave all the money to the church, would that get me to heaven, I asked the children in my Sunday school class? 
No, the children all answered. If I cleaned the church every day, mowed the yard, and kept everything neat and tidy, would that get me to heaven? No, the answer was again. Well then, if I was kind to animals and gave candy to all the children and loved my wife, would that get me to heaven? I asked them again once more, and they all answered no. Well, I continued thinking they were a good bit more theologically sophisticated than I'd given them credit for. Then how can I get to heaven? And a five-year-old boy from the back of the room shouted, you got to be dead. <laughs> well, that is true, isn't it? To get to heaven, you got to be dead. That only, that only is involved in the transition, but really to get to heaven, the Bible pictures it as you've got to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. That's what John was seeing. This great multitude gathered around the throne in glory, worshiping God for the salvation that God had made available to them. He said they were dressed in white, meaning that they had had their soiled garments washed in the spotless blood of Christ. And rather than those garments coming out crimson, they come out as white as snow. Again, which is a picture, a picture of the purity that Christ gives us. And, and we stand in glory in His righteousness, not our own because we have none. So heaven is, a re, is for real. It is filled with real people. It is free of real problems. But finally, I want you to note that heaven is the final home with real presence, and that is the presence of God. It is our final destination, our final journey. We will be in the presence of the Lord. Look in verse number 15. Therefore are they before the throne of God, look at this, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sits on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat, for the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them to living fountains of water. In other words, it's going to be a real place, and it's going to be the final destination of God's people, and we will be there with the real presence of our Savior for all eternity. Now, maybe you're asking yourself, Pastor Darrell, if we're going to spend eternity in heaven, or is it going to be one long worship service? Is it going to be one long worship experience? Well, the answer to that is yes and no. It'll be one long worship experience, but listen, many, 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 many million fold more so than what we experience here because we'll be in a new city, we'll be in a new body, we'll be in a new environment. All things will be made new. Our relationships will be pure. We'll live with love. Our walk with Christ will be uninterrupted, and it will be pure, and it'll be unlike anything that we have ever experienced in this world at all, whatsoever at all. Some might ask, wouldn't it be boring to be there forever and ever and ever and ever? Well, listen, you're just not going to float on a cloud playing a harp. But God has a purpose for us when we get to heaven. Let me quote what Dr. Billy Graham says about this. He says, one thing is certain, quote, one thing is certain, we will not be bored in heaven. In heaven, we will be in God's presence forever. And just as God is infinite, so the experiences he gives us will be infinite. Did you hear that? Just as God is infinite, he is limitless. There's no limit to him. We too, the experiences we have in glory will not be finite. They will be infinite. He writes, 
God is also omniscient. That is, He is limitless in His knowledge. And no matter what we learn in heaven, there will always be more to discover. I often think of the Apostle Paul's statement, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His past beyond tracing out. He says, but there'll be two other reasons why we won't be bored in heaven. First, God will have a work for us to do. The Bible doesn't go into detail, but you can think of, can you think of anything more exciting than working for God in heaven? Second, the Bible says heaven will also be a place of rest. The Bible says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. They will rest from their labor. Heaven is the destiny of every believer, not because we're perfect, but because Jesus died and rose again to save us. So we will be in the eternal presence of God forever and forever and forever and forever. And we could preach an entire series on our, our responsibilities and what we will be doing in heaven. And somehow I believe that is linked to our personal giftedness here on this earth. But will be magnified many, many times when we, once we get to glory. So John, in seeing this scene of heaven around around the throne of God and this vast multitude of people in heaven from every walk of life concludes this section with this final sentence in verse 17 where he says, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Now I could not imagine, nor can you, living in a world where there are no tears. We were born into this world and the doctor smacked us, and we've been crying ever since, haven't we? Listen to what David writes, Psalm 56. You tell my wonderings, and you put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? Meaning, life is filled with heartbreak, filled with tears. And we don't know what it would be like to be in a place where there are no more tears. I mentioned in the first service that I read about the days of the Roman Empire where mourners would bury their loved ones with a bottle where they had caught their tears, put their tears in this bottle, and as a sign of respect to their loved ones, they would bury that tear-filled bottle or vial with their loved one. If you didn't have folk who would mourn over you, you could hire somebody to mourn over you. And they had professional wailers and they would come, and the louder they would wail, and the more tears that they would shed and fill in that bottle, the greater their payday. But then I also read that during the Civil War, that many women actually did something very similar. They took those bottles and put their tears into their bottles so that their husbands who came home from the war, this would be a testimony by the wife of how much they missed their husband. So I also said that Tina does that for me when I go on a mission trip. And I'm out of the country. Not really. You know better than that, right? But no tears in heaven. All of the tears that are shed are caught in a bottle. In fact, do you know those, those tear bottles are making a comeback nowadays? You can actually buy them online. And you can buy them in trendy craft stores. And it's just a reminder. Our world has fallen. Our world is broken. And everybody in it sheds tears. But listen, if you know the Lord, do you know that one of these days, now just listen to this and we're going to close. The God who created this world, who sent Jesus to die on the cross for us, who holds the oceans in the hollow of his hand, that when you get to heaven, God himself 
will wipe away every tear from your eye. That's a blessing, amen? Meaning that you'll never have any more sorrow, no more death, no more suffering, no more sickness, no more pain. So I'm here today to tell you, heaven is for real. And more than that, the Bible is here to tell you that heaven is for real. Last week, I had a, a funeral service, and at the graveside, I had just shared with the family that there really is a heaven, there really is a God, He really does love us, He really did send His Son to die on the cross for us, and He really has prepared a home for every single one of us with Him in glory. Not because we earned it or deserve it, not because, not because uh, we've done enough good to get it, but because God simply so loved the world that He gave His Son that He could invite us into His forever family. So I want to close. If you're here today and if you were to die and find yourself standing before God and He said, why should I let you into heaven? What would be your answer? If your answer is anything other than because I've asked Jesus Christ to come into my life and save me, then it would be the wrong answer. And if you've never invited Christ into your life, man, what a great way to end our service today. Dude, just like what Jordan was talking about today, how you get the Lord into your life, it just changes your whole perspective and it changes your whole life. And I would invite you to do this, just that. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for being so very good to us and for inviting us into your family. Thank you for making a home for us in heaven that is absolutely real, not a figment of imagination, not mythological in nature, but a real place called heaven. And real people go there, and we're going to be one of those people. Thank you for that, Lord. But we're also reminded that there's also a real place called hell, and real people go there. But you have made the way so that no one has to go there without stepping over the cross of Jesus in the empty tomb. You took the death, you paid the sentence that we could never pay, and you have given us your eternal righteousness. God, as we have this time of invitation, we invite folk to make decisions. If there's one among us today that's never been saved, what a great day that they could come and say, Pastor Darrell, I want to be saved this morning. Others who want to unite with our church family or others who just want to come and pray, take the invitation and use it in a way that will honor you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen and amen.